Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome back. Today we're talking about what can be learnt from paying attention to the more everyday, mundane aspects of education. I'm joined by Dr Jakob Billmeier, a German researcher currently based in Malmö University in Sweden. Much of Jakob's work seeks to gain critical insights about schools by looking at aspects of education that most researchers might otherwise ignore. He's carried out some fascinating work on what might be described as invisible objects, including research about the significance of doors and furniture in German and Swedish classrooms, the ways in which students' school bags are used to carry norms and values from home to school, and even the pedagogical substance of Jamie Oliver's many cookbooks. All of this can provide great insight into the social, cultural and political nature of contemporary school life. So given the eclectic nature of Jakob's research, I started with a simple question. Regardless of the specific project, what are the core issues, themes and questions that he sets out to address throughout all of his work? work turned out to mainly be about the very everyday events or everyday small things that surround us. My research is very much based on my own experiences, my curiosity. I find it very interesting to get to know why things are at this moment as they are and what's what's behind it, what decisions were made. I'm very optimistic. I don't see problems, I more see like possibilities. And that, that leads to this kind of research that involves school bags and Jamie Oliver and pencils and doors and that stuff. And so if you're curious and you're optimistic, but you are looking at these everyday objects, what do you get from looking at school bags and Jamie Oliver cookbooks that you wouldn't from looking at more obvious things? What is it about the everyday objects? What do they tell you? What can you get from them? Oh, I, I would say that they are the obvious things. And for some reason, they are the, the, the blind spots in our I can only speak for education and, and social sciences, but they are somehow always on the side. So, so, so often it seems to me that people are trying to find the, the unusual rather than looking at the, the, the obvious. So for me, these things are obvious and they are good talking pieces, I think, that stick out between other research topics, but they're a bit odd, a bit unusual. So it's interesting that the most obvious things actually are not the most obvious to do research on. Perhaps they're too obvious, but as you say, they kind of get people's attention. So they must be quite a useful way of getting messages across to teachers and parents and kind of everyday users of research. And it's, a, it's a, of course, not easy to actually find the right kind of abstraction around them. Mm. So, so it took, I think, two and a half years between uh, the first idea about the school bags and actually gathering the material on the school bags until I found the right theoretical framing. So what to do with it. Uh, and that's often more of a challenge if you start your research in this kind of inspirational yeah, yeah. part than if you start in a more theoretical or a question that the, that the practitioners ask you. A proper problem where something must be solved a, in a some way. A proper problem. Well, yeah. let's start with this school bag project then. I mean, you describe yeah. these as invisible objects. I mean, what is it about school bags in particular that makes them of interest? Well, in, in Germany, they are an extremely important part of the school day, but also of the life of, of pupils. It's, it's much like a school uniform. So when you get your first school uniform, when you get your first school bag, you actually make the, the, the transition from being a kindergarten child to becoming a school pupil. 
But in in Sweden, the 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 pupil carries stuff from school to the home for homework. So they are supplied with the pens and pencil and all this in the classroom by the teacher. In Germany, it's the it's the other way around. You are your you and your parents are supposed to buy these things and you carry them to school. So that's a that's a major difference. But the interesting thing about the German school bag, one thing is that it's not making you equal because they they are also markers for social differences mm. because they're extremely expensive. Such a school bag can cost around 200 pounds with everything in, involved and you have pictures on it from this Disney Disney figures or anything like this. So it's markers for differences at the same time as it makes the child into the pupil. So this is this is one of the things. And then it's always a discussion point because they are heavy. Pupils have to carry things to school and from school because there's a lot of homework. School spills into it. And, and this space, this confined space of the school bag is somehow an interesting space between home and school. School spilling into home, home spilling into school. Important things for the pupil as persons, peers, as pupils and, and so on. So they're a very kind of personal, intimate object, I guess. I mean, how do you actually research something like that that does belong to the student? What methods do you, do you yeah. employ to research this? The, the starting point was the actual possibility to, to get this kind of, of material. And a dear friend of mine who is a, a school teacher, a school principal and school teacher in, in Germany made it as a little extracurricular activity, which meant that in some kind of afternoon club or something like that, they ask pupils to actually unpack their bags and and put it on a, on a white cloth on a, on a table. I think this is called nulling. But I got this idea from the beginning. There was a meme a couple of years ago on Facebook where um, they compared the, the, the contents of different countries' ambulance and police cars okay. by, by putting the stuff on the ground beside the car. Even the people were lying down and, and then they took a picture from it. And then yeah. you saw that, oh, in... Um, in the Netherlands, you have a boat, and in Switzerland, you have mountaineering equipment. And I thought, oh, I want to do this. I, I want to do research with pictures like that. So that was the basic desire. And then I always had this idea from my thesis and from my background in, in Germany to emphasizing the, the role of the school bag. And I said, okay, let's try to make this aesthetically interesting. And we took these pictures, or they took these pictures. They took away anything from the from the, from the pupils, so I don't know their names. I have approximate idea which years they go to, so so it's not completely anonymous. But I, I, we only use these pictures and and try to 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 to, to construct the theory and the model around how to understand these in the context of what we know about the school classrooms that that they are actually going to. And you got the students to actually lie down beside their school bags? No, uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> without, the, without, the, without the pupils. Now it's just their stuff. And so you took a kind of socio-materialist approach to unpacking yeah. these, these photographs. Yeah. I mean, for the uninitiated, what does this actually involve? Well, it's, it's, it's a post-human theory, I would say, the, the, the socio-materialist theory. And easily, simply put, it's the idea that the things that surround us are not just to our command, but they actually do something, create the social situations and in which we are. I think there are those social materialists who actually ascribe them some kind of agency. I would not go that far. I'm very coined by the works of Niklas Luhmann. And so I would say things can become observers in a social situation as much as humans also are observers in them. So, so you, you can't just take away an object and replace it by something else that, that will make something with the situation, with the context. So you have to be careful if you do that. And so what did you find out about school bags? What are they in service of? I mean, presumably they're not just a functional means of carrying pens and paper from home to school. What did you find out in terms of this, this broader picture? Uh, there are 
actually surprisingly much stuff for school in it. But the amount and the differentiation of things, of different papers, of different writing books, of different pens and pencils, both permanent, non-permanent, felt-tip rulers, spirals, these are the first words I ever learned in English, these, these things, all appear here. And you have, you have uh, measurement tools for, for math and geometry. And, and pupils are carrying around this all the time because they might become useful and might become necessary. So if you are, it makes a difference between the orderly and the well-prepared pupil and the not-prepared pupil if you have this bag on your back and all these things with you and can organize and handle this amount. It's, it's not unusual to find 30 different pens and pencils in, in such a bag for different purposes in, in, this, in this context. And then you have these, these more, more odd things. Many pe pupils have medical aids of different kinds with them, handkerchiefs, uh, nasal spray, uh, headache, what do you call it, um, painkillers and stuff like that. And, and, and some, some souvenirs and some things that have to do with the peer relation. But we actually, I, I actually thought that there would be more other stuff than school stuff. Yeah, and did you find any interesting differences? I mean, you couldn't really tell who the students were, but I mean, when you looked at the school bags, presumably they all didn't have rulers in them and, and medical equipment. The, the, the sheer amount differs a lot. So you actually can be a pupil with, with lots less things. Then you have these pupils who carry around a really, really lot of things. So I think that if you would use it in a quantitative study of some kind, there, I would guess there are correlations between the academic ambition between, between the, the pupil and the, the bag. There are certainly gender differences. Girls have more stuff and more differentiated stuff than boys, I would say. say there are some markers that suggest that this is a boy's bag and that mm. is a girl's bag. And of course, you've, I mean, you've done more than just look at school bags. Students take school bags into classrooms. You've done yeah. actually research comparing German and Swedish yeah. classrooms and the way that they're ordered as well. And there were two things that struck me about this. You were looking at doors and you were looking at furniture. What is it about a classroom door that's of interest? You meet these doors, these classroom doors, that in Sweden are amazingly open during class. And it's not only the doors that are open during class, but actually the rooms are open. I did, I did part of my, my, my PhD research in a school building, which I think you could describe as Victorian. Mm. It's an 1870s, 1880s school building that's quite common, uh, common, I think, throughout all of Europe. But at some point, and I would guess it must have happened sometime between the 1960s and 1980s, there was a renovation, and then they decided to actually open up walls of the classrooms and put the windows in it. So they purposely opened up the classrooms from the Victorian era into the modern age. And in Germany we still have the very closed, enclosed spaces. The, the classroom door opens when class begins, everybody gets in, finds their place and then it's closed and then you have your 45-90 minutes of class and it opens again. And if you want to leave during that time you have to ask for it, you have to have a good reason. I need to use the toilet. Maybe you even need to have a hall pass because you don't. You really just supposed to go to the toilet and then straight back and so on. So this is very very confined spaces. And then you have these these Swedish spaces that are from this from my my original German perspective extremely open. And both aspects, of course, both good and bad sides. Too. Mm. But but that's an amazing thing that you can actually make the difference through the door.
So the actual significant act of getting up and opening the door to leave the classroom. Yeah, exactly. It's a per permeable classroom door during yeah. during the during the class, and 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 not only for pupils, but also other teachers can come in and take out the group and teach them or or so there's there's a lot of movement in and out that i don't think see as much in in outside sweden and maybe in, or, or maybe outside the nordics i'm not sure about how it looks in where it looks in in, in norway and, and denmark and so what about the furniture what about the chairs and the desks and the stuff inside yeah, the classroom these these things reflect of course each other again so the 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 movement between out and inside of the classroom is reflected on the inside. So you, you, you have more of these flexible and more unpredictable furniture. So there can be one classroom that is very classic, like, you know, now in, in, in rows of, of four or six or, or, or two and twos and looking to the, to the blackboard. And then you have these with islands and, and, and separate spaces. So the, the big difference or the, or, the, or the special thing about the Swedish school in general, I think, is less predictable in its, in its, in its order. So it's not, not always the same. And so theoretically, though, you didn't necessarily use a socio-materialist approach to look at, to look at these objects. I mean, how did you approach no. doors and, and classrooms? Well, well, this is also one of these things that just came from a an, from an personal interest. I'm interested in, in intercultural comparison as a, as, a, as, a, as a migrant. That's something that's built into you or comes along with it. And uh, I, I read uh, Michel Foucault's Discipline and Punish at that time. And I, I got stuck with the, I think it's four parts, and it's, it's the first three parts are very historical. And I read those three parts and I understood them, and I liked them. And there are these different techniques of how the disciplinary order works, so how to define space and time and, and people in space and time and things in space and time, and action in space and time, in a way that is controllable and, and becomes that what, what we call this disciplinary order. And which is coming for the for the factory and the monastery and, and our schools. I completely ignored the fourth chapter. So whenever people talk about uh, Foucault to me, they talk about the fourth chapter, and I say, I don't know. I, I, I didn't get that. I kept to the historical part and operationalized these terms that he used for comparing and, and abstract uh, describing these these. Um, these classrooms and, and, and the actions in it and the people in it. And classrooms that were built in the 1870s, yeah. which were the institutions that Foucault was also kind of interested in. Exactly. Perfect. Yeah. And last of all, I, mean, I can't not ask you about your study of Jamie Oliver cookbooks. Yeah. What did you find out about Jamie Oliver's cookbook and the educational relationships between Jamie and his readers and you know, the relationship between the ingredients and the methods? And what did you this find? Is, this is, again, one of these um, things that started in the, in, the, in the personal experience that I, um, I, I, I like cooking. Cooking is my hobby. I'm a quite routine home cook both during weekdays and on weekends and and I like I like Jamie Oliver as a person so so I had I bought a book by him it's called uh, the Jamie's Ministry of Food I think and that book really developed my knowledge and my skills and my ideas of what you can blend and how you blend things so so this book is something I, I used a lot and I, I learned a lot from that and then I thought I'd buy another book and it's called 30 Minute Meals because I like the meals. I saw it on TV. I like the meals. I like the tastes. I like the ideas. So what can go wrong? And then I experienced I can't work with this book. It, it was like my left and right hand were switched and I, I, I couldn't use these recipes. Mm. So I wondered what's the difference between them and how can I systematize these differences? And one thing I found is that, that these 30 Minute Meals actually are they are instructions. They are like, like a gym teacher. They tell you to, to move your left arm up now and to put it down there. And if you follow these rhythms that are given in the text, 
then you might succeed with these 30 minutes. But if you have your own routine, if you have come a step further, that you actually know where you want to place your knife, where you have your cutting board and all these things, then this, this might actually go against your rhythm. Mm. This Ministry of Food, I would say, is a bit like, like a school class, where the teacher introduces the problem which the pupil didn't even know he had, because home cooking is more healthy than buying takeout. It's a very British problem than maybe a Scandinavian problem. Uh, and then he teaches you the basics and explains how cooking is done. Very basic. Whereas the other one is um, you don't learn how to cook. You just, you just get instructions. Like, like nobody wants to learn how to, to assemble an um, IKEA uh, shelf. You, you don't want to know that by heart. You don't have to know that by heart. So the Ministry of Food is maybe something for eventually being able to do something by heart and by yourself and being able to improvise. Whereas the 30-minute meals is the drill instructor and you have to follow and then it will work. And what difference does you as the reader make to that? Because you're coming at this as a you know, middle-class academic that's been very successful education. You don't want to be instructed what to do. But presumably those other books are written for other types of readers? Did you? Oh, I, I would say that the, the Ministry of Food, of course, speaks maybe not to the academic, but I, I, I'm still a receiver of that and I buy that and, and that book, it works. Um, but I, I'm somebody who wants to be a cook. I want to be able to cook by myself. I, I, the, the, my, my aim with using a cookbook is not having to use a cookbook anymore. Yeah. And I think the Ministry of Food is a book that is actually made for those who don't want to use it in the end. Like a school book. Yeah, you you yeah. don't want to carry a school book with you through your life. You, you use it for a purpose and then it's done and then you should know it. And they should know the, the dates of the French Revolution and, and not having to look, up, look it up. Whereas the other one is the one that the, those who said, oh, I'm, I, I don't have the time to learn. I don't want to know by heart. I just want to get instructions and I want it done. I'm not sure if that works. I have no, never met anybody who, who has used the 30-minute meals and it works in, in the way that it's, that it's, that it's designed. So um, the, the, the class thing in, in Jamie Oliver is a very interesting thing because he has very simplified assumptions about class and I don't think has any clue about how poor people in his country can be. And it's always written for people like us and uh, uh, the likes, I think. I mean, there's so much there to unpack and so much you can unpack about what we talk about learning and teaching in general. It's super interesting. So, I mean... We've talked about those particular objects. I'm always interested about people's future intentions. Are there, is there another object or particular um, aspect of everyday life that you're becoming to become interested in, that you're thinking might, you might be your next project? At the moment, I'm working on something much more theoretical. I have fallen in love with the didactical triangle, which I think has not been used in its visual way as much as it could be. So I'm trying to work on that and make a suggestion of again comparing different kind of educational settings using this triangle as a model which actually is, is, it derives from the, from the um, Jamie Oliver project. I just found, thanks to ChatGPT, I found a French book which I ha would have never found without this uh, tool um, where uh, uh, a scholar from the 1990s has maybe tried something similar. So I'm at the moment trying to get my, 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 my French dusted off and read a bit about that in French. Excellent. And ChatGTP didn't make the reference up because sometimes it does kind of invent oh, references. Yes. Oh, yes. I tried, I tried, to, I tried uh, to, to continue with this and, and he, this, this, this thing, I always refer to it as a he, made up three uh, references connected to Wolfgang Klafke that, that just, they, they're not even 
in the nearest existing. So that's interesting. So we're not going to be relying on ChatGTP to write all of our research quite oh. yet. That's fantastic. Well, thanks ever so much, Jakob. It's super interesting research. Really interesting to talk to you. Good luck. Thank you that you asked me to be on your podcast.